1: ego and check me. <laughs> yeah, it's a
0: date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Adam Mada has been entertaining audiences and creating custom magic and illusion shows internationally for more than 20 years. As a leading magician, entertainer and magic illusions consultant, Adam Mada has his audiences spellbound with spectacular stage shows and cutting-edge magic performances with an affectionate nod to the golden era of magic. He is the magic and illusions coach to the global smash hit Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Australia and the magic and illusion consultant and coach for the Australian National Institute of Dramatic Art. Adam is also the magic illusion designer for the highly anticipated stage adaptation of Mem Fox's Australian classic Possum Magic for Monkey Bar Theatre. The art and craft of magic and illusion has fascinated me for a lifetime. The craft has been practised on stages around the globe for centuries. As an entertainment, it always inspires awe and delightful confusion. As an art, it requires incredible discipline and skill. I can't wait to investigate the artistry further with Adam Marder. Now, uh, you are known as the Wizard of Oz. I, uh, I gather in my research uh, and also Mr Magic. Um, so it leads me to, to ask you, uh, have you ever pulled a rabbit out of a hat, Adam?
1: It's funny you say that, Peter. <laughs> um, I've never owned a rabbit in my life, right. and I've only recently added top hats to my kind of world, and I love a top hat. I think the aesthetic is, is beautiful, but my daughter, Hazel, recently turned seven, and she said, Dad, I want a rabbit.
0: <laughs> so, Do you think so, you're, you're working into the
1: act? Well, funny you say that. So, finally, I had an excuse to actually go and get a rabbit. Um... And so this was only really just a few months ago. Uh, and so for her seventh birthday, I prepared everything, got the rabbit and a little, little baby dwarf, N- Netherland dwarf, called Cookie. And I pulled Cookie out of a top hat for her birthday in the morning. It was the best day ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so literally only a few weeks ago, a client came to me um, for, a, for a private party um, and their request was, we, we want a rabbit to be pulled out of a hat. And I said, well, I can do that for you. And so that was the first time I've ever actually pulled a rabbit out of a hat um, and it went down a treat.
0: Did uh, Cookie cook quite well with it? Yeah,
1: no, Cookie's great. Yeah, Cookie's really uh, very friendly, loves being, loves being in small spaces, loves being handled. Um, yeah, it, it, Cookie's fantastic. And look, one of the reasons magicians use rabbits is they stay still. So if you place a rabbit in a hat, it will actually just stay there. It's right. not gonna, it won't jump out and run away. Right. Um,
0: so, and similarly with doves too, I suppose. All
1: yeah, d- doves do as well. Um, yeah, uh, similar, similar, similar kind of vibe. Yeah. I also learned how to hypnotize Cookie as well. Right. Hypnotize, which is quite fun. But until, literally up until. I made that rabbit appear for my daughter. I can tell you, I, in my entire professional life, have never seen a magician pull a rabbit from a hat. It's, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because mm, it's
0: a, I know it's a cliche, but it's the, the trick most associated with magic. Yeah. Along with the top hat and the, and the, and the cane and, yeah. the, um, and the cape.
1: But have you ever seen a rabbit come out of a hat? No. No, no one no. has. <laughs> that, that's the thing. No one actually has. So where did all that come from, do you think? Well, it, look, there's a, there's a huge amount of history on it. And when I started researching why do magicians pull rabbits out of hats, it turns out it's actually not really that common. And most, uh, especially children's birthday performers that do have rabbits that the kids like, they won't actually pull them out of hats because it's quite hard to to sort of make that happen. They'll make them appear in a box or they'll just bring them out for patting and that sort of thing. But actually pulling a rabbit out of a hat is is a whole different thing. In fact, Penn and Teller do a whole routine about this concept that they'd never seen a magician pull a rabbit from a hat so they actually made this segment where they actually pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, So it's almost like a running gag with magicians that no one actually ever does it and the only documentation on how to pull a rabbit out of a hat is from a really old book that doesn't really make very much sense uh, and certainly doesn't work in the real world. But the, the history, it's really interesting because are you familiar with the, mount back, the term mountback? No. Travelling snail, uh, snake oil salesman, salesman? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So they're called uh, mountbacks. Yeah, mountbacks.
1: Yeah. Right. So back in the day, there was a lady called Mary, and she created this tremendous hoax in the UK. And the hoax was that she gave birth to rabbits. And so she called in the doctors, and they verified, yes, she gave birth to rabbits, and, of course, this, it, it, just, it was front-page news for months on end in, in London. And it created just such a... It, it was like a, a TikTok trend today. It was just... It was huge. And because it was so big, travelling mountbacks uh, basically cottoned onto the idea, and so they started putting rabbits in their act. Right. And they'd make them appear, or they'd destroy them and crush them and then sort of uh, restore them, because it, it was, it was a, a trend of the time. It was popular. And that's ultimately where the, the image of a magician pulling a rabbit from a hat came from, is, th- is those days.
0: We see lots of illusionists and magicians uh, using animals in their acts, though, mm. don't we? Um, mm. uh, and I think of some, a couple like Siegfried and Roy, yep. who were making lions and, and mm. huge cats and, um, and other large animals disappear and appear.
1: Yeah, it's uh, look, I, I have a bit of a funny relationship with it. I think using any kind of live animal um, on stage now is, is probably not the right thing to necessarily be doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think domestic animals... Uh, I was recently working on Australia's Got Talent um, and we were discussing magicians uh, making animals appear on stage and we kind of made the decision with the network that domestic animals were okay in terms of public view and because domestic animals were used to being kept in enclosed environments and managed and handled and that sort of thing. But producing or working with any kind of wild animal or non-domesticated animal was really sort of on, on the... It, it was pushing the boundaries a bit, yeah. yeah.
0: And, um, and your animal actor, I guess, um, you've got to really rely on them doing the right thing. Animals yeah. can be very, quite rightly so, unpredictable. Yeah
1: yeah absolutely there's there's a lot of management and care that needs to go to go into into that um, but look using magicians are known for working with elephants and uh, uh, dogs and and rabbits and birds obviously a lot of these animals are domesticated and can actually be trained yeah. um, so they
0: yeah well, there's a whole repertoire of tricks of course mm. um in the um the magician's bag of tricks. Um, very commonplace levitation, card tricks, hypnotism, escapology, um, flames, sawing someone in half. What was your gateway trick? What, what was the first trick that you discovered that you could do that sort of um, opened up this wonderful world of magic?
1: Look, I've always loved fire, ever since I was I was a young boy. Um, I was really into science as a kid in school. Uh, doing experiments so fire and making fire appear and and sort of manipulating fire has always been a thing Um, right through my work today uh, for the Tempest actually STC with Richard Roxburgh I created a very huge fire trick Um, so I'm still working with fire a lot today but one of my gateway tricks into kind of becoming a, a magician was a little levitating card a playing card that you could levitate and sort of move around your body yeah Mm. levitation and that was self-taught i expect
0: uh that's why i read about you a lot of your magic was self-taught initially
1: yeah as as any
0: young boy um you know getting their first magic kit
1: yeah look it's funny most there's no um magic ultimately is a self-taught endeavor uh there are a few schools around the world there's one in south africa the college of magic Uh, and there's various places in Las Vegas where they've got schools of magic one of which I I went to for a little while Uh, but ultimately it's a a passion craft born out of a hobby and really most of it becomes self-taught until you then find a mentor or a Mm. coach and then you start working with other people
0: I was going to say some sort of apprenticeship
1: yeah pretty much yeah it's a dying I think apprenticeship and mentorship is, is a bit of a dying thing And most mentorship seems to be coming from YouTube or social media.
0: Yeah. Which is the way of the world now, isn't it? Not only with magic, with anything. Yeah. Well, it used to be the school library. So you'd
1: you'd go into the school library looking for a magic book or or any kind of library, really. Uh, But now, you know, all of that will be consumed on YouTube.
0: Can anything be uh, made to become invisible? Invisibility is something that fascinates me with the uh, the illusionist or or the magician.
1: Yeah, absolutely, invisibility, I actually gave a panel talk with Brian Schmidt, the uh, Nobel Prize winning laureate for physics. We gave a talk on invisibility and it was absolutely fascinating. Also on that panel was a very high profile uh, lawyer who was blind and had been blind since birth. Um, We had a fascinating chat about invisibility and what invisibility means. Um, and what it means to disappear or to vanish, um, for the stage play of Possum Magic, in our early development workshops, part of our discussions with the creative team was what does it mean to be invisible? Um, and so, in in Mem Fox's book, it, it's I mean we all take it for granted that hush is just an outline, a fuzzy, out, a fuzzy sort of coloured outline. And we as the reader understand that Hush is now invisible. But that's quite a genius concept for the illustrator to happen across or, or, or come on. We take that for granted. So part of our challenge in that play was how do we represent Hush to be invisible on stage? And so a large part of our development was just was discovering what the language of the magic was going to be and how we represent to the, that to the audience. And ultimately we arrived on a costume because we weren't using puppets we were using real people we arrived on a costume uh, and Emma Vine the designer on that came up with a really beautiful concept with sort of leaves on the costume which looked a little bit like fur and were sort of translucent a little bit but then went into sort of a a silver white so we had this silver white translucent costume which changed throughout the play but that was effectively our, our outline
0: What's the, um, the, the history of magic in Australia? It would have been around uh, early last century? I yeah, think. early
1: last century, 1800s, 1900s. Yeah. Um, Australia's got a really strong history with with magic and uh, our own entertainers and performers like Les Levant. Uh, the Great Levant. The, the Great Levant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also touring international acts who would come to Australia with their with their big international touring shows and, and, and tour the country. Um, so
0: in uh, vaudeville tent shows, that, that yeah, sort of thing, Va- yeah, vaudeville
1: tent shows. There was also a touring circuit in cinemas. So during the kind of early in the sort of nineteen hundreds, around 1910, 1915 when people would go out and watch watch a film, that actually have a bit of a vaudeville, because it ultimately killed vaudeville. The vaudeville circuit moved into the cinemas, so you'd have a warm-up act,
0: um, a prior, prior to the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, curtain raiser. Yeah.
1: Uh, so that was a whole a whole circuit.
0: Right. Mm. Uh, you talk about the Great Levant, who, uh, he, 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 well, the most famous magician probably in Australia is so that he had worldwide,
1: yeah. uh, acclaim. Um, in fact, the there's a um, one of the institutions in Melbourne. The Arts Centre, I believe, acquired his steel trunk uh, only recently, in the last six months. Um, And Kent Blackmore, the historian, was kind of seeded that whole acquisition. Uh, And so they paid an enormous sum of money for that um, and acquired it from an auction dealer over in in England. Uh, And it's an amazing part of Australian history.
0: Mm. And and you yourself continue to practice one of his famous tricks.
1: Yes, any drink called for. So how the, does that work? Or the magic teapot. Um, okay. Look, th- this is an effect built in myth and mystery. Um, and I, probably about 15 years ago, started to really become obsessed with this trick. I wanted to pull it off, but I couldn't find any information on how to do it or who had done it in the past. And any information or booklets written about this trick really weren't quite accurate. They were They were interpretations of how you might actually pull it off. But the real secrets were never really discussed, even though there were many pamphlets and books that were sold to you by magic dealers, sort of implicating that the secret was within. And it wasn't, it was a very frustrating journey of about four years. Um, And then I decided just to make my own. So I I built my own um, prop and teapot, and it uses many many sort of methods in magic, uh, all combined together to make one effect. And often a good magic routine whether it's in theatre or in a magician's show we kind of stack on top of on top of one another different methods and principles to create a deceptive effect in uh, the great Levant's time um, I've been informed by reliable sources that the majority of his method was pure um, brute force so he would almost pummel the audience into believing that he would poured out a scotch or a beer or whatever or whatever it was. And th- this effect was really popular in music halls at the time, uh, and music, music halls were slightly different to the vaudeville circuit where they were loud and boisterous, um, very different to a theatre um, where you, you had people not necessarily paying attention, so you needed an act that could really command attention. And so if you're pouring out free drinks on stage, um, you, you're going to get that attention. Yeah. It was also really popular during Prohibition, and there's stories where the bar could not actually serve any drinks to people, but the stage actor could. So that's kind of a, one of the origin myths, that a magician came up with a way to serve drinks to the audience to get around Prohibition laws. So uh,
0: an audience member would call out a particular drink that they would like to imbibe yeah. and then the magic teapot
1: yeah, would so pour that. that that's exactly right. right Yeah, and the magician may have an assistant with a tray full of, a tray full of drinks um, and it might be a beer or a scotch and you pour out the drinks and then they'd, they'd drink them uh, over the years there's been many many different ver- variations and incarnations of the trick it was also born from a very simple trick from I think it's around the t- turn of the 15th century called the inexhaustible bottle and this was a... It looked like a, a a jug of water or a bottle of wine. And this bottle could pour out any drink, but it could also pour out endless amounts of wine. And then the magician would smash the bottle at the end of the routine and a hamster would, would jump out of the bottle. Right. So it had a nice kicker ending.
0: You'd have to be reliant on uh, your audience <laughs> member requesting uh, one of the standard drinks, wouldn't you? I mean, if somebody suddenly said, I want a drambuie or a, a Peach Schnapps or something, is uh, uh, not,
1: not not at all. In fact, I, I think if you're only pouring out standards, then the audience is going to expect. Well, that's what the audience is. You know, I think if you are pouring out a Drambuie or a, a uh, blue iced crystal illusion drink or something, um, you're re- that that's where it becomes real magic. Yeah. Mm. I don't, know. I don't want to ask the secret. <laughs> but, but is it true that a magician well, there's, never, there's never many gives away secrets their secrets? I, I, to be honest, I couldn't even tell you what one of the secrets because there are many secrets. from Switches to misdirection to technology right. to yeah. all sorts of things all sort of embedded in one. The, the late Paul Daniels actually uh, from England uh, helped me with my teapot. Uh, so I was very fortunate enough to, to chat with him and he, he's got a brilliant version uh, which he allowed me to post on YouTube from his 1983 BBC Christmas special. And it is remarkable. Yeah.
0: Mm. So magicians do give away the secrets to other magicians.
1: Absolutely. Genre- generally for a price. <laughs> yeah, <right>. of course.
0: <laughs> oh, so the great Levant, that's a great professional name. Yeah. Yours is Adam Mata, yeah, which is a palindrome. Mm. So how did you come up with that professional name? I think it's fantastic.
1: Well, I didn't. A friend of mine did. Right. Jamie Pinkerton is his name. Um, another famous magician family (laughs) yeah Um, look early on in my career I I was juggling whether I use a stage name or or how I should use a stage name and ultimately I think a stage name has always benefited me professionally because I can separate a little bit of my personal life and professional life yeah Um, and Look, I, I didn't really want a stage name that was the great this or the great. Or very clearly a stage name. I wanted it to. It sets up audience expectations, then. Doesn't yeah, it? look, and I wanted it. I wanted it to be able to pass off as just uh, uh, my name, or also a stage name. And so when this particular friend of mine said, "Oh, why don't you just do Adam and then Adam backwards?" I thought it was absurd. I thought what a ridiculously stupid idea. And then it kind of grew on me. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's interesting. It definitely worked well for the logo and all, all of those sorts of things. And, you know, it had various magic implications and being a palindrome and all that sort of thing. And so I kind of went with it. Um, and now I'm stuck with it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, I've gone too far down the line. So that is just the name. And creating an identity for yourself is always an interesting process. Um, and I I've honestly worked with some people for 10 years. And they will call me up and say, just realised your name is a palindrome. That's not your name, is it? And it's, you know, I will work with people and I instantly go, oh, that's really clever, or that's fun. I like that. That's that's. They'll instantly recognise it's not yeah. my name, yeah. but some people will actually just assume it's my name and have never given it a second thought for years later. Right, because mm. a
0: palindrome is it. It is an illusion, an optical illusion, yep. if you like. So yep. I think it works in terrifically
1: with the, with your profession. Yeah, and look, it, it actually I think part of why I liked it is I created a trick when early on when I was exploring that as a name, I created a trick with a glass of water. And if you, if you do take a glass of water and place it in front of a text, it'll actually reverse the text. So you could actually write the name Adam and then place the glass of water in front of it and it would actually turn it into Marta. And right. I always thought that was really fun. Right. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> Speaking of names, it leads me to ask, You know, uh, often at, at social gatherings or you visit another country you have to go through customs um you've got to declare your occupation or someone someone will ask what your occupation is yeah is it um easy to say magician or do you say something else because i know just as being an actor you know tell people that you're an actor and it just opens up this whole can of worms of discussion that you don't want to go down but um what's it like being a professional magician
1: yeah look that's a really fun question and I've had many, um, I've got many stories with, with sort of mix-ups with being a magician and also my stage name and real name being being sort of similar um, I think in my early 20s when I was sort of becoming a professional I always, I, I was always waiting for that day where on my tax return I could write my profession as magician yep. I thought that was, and I remember the first time I did that, I, I was mid-20s and I was really proud of that moment that the tax man was getting tax from a magician I thought it was hilarious <laughs> yes. um, since then I've kind of changed my tack on that and generally on formal documents and I do travel a lot overseas um, going through customs and immigration I'll often put something along the lines of entertainer or creative creative director or creative or or because I'm a director of my company I'll just be a director um, I kind of typically avoid magician because it, it 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 either sounds absurd or there will be questions mm-hmm. or it, it'll open up conversations when i'm just really too tired to have conversations <laughs> about being a magician Absolutely. so often even in some social situations where i don't want to have that conversation um i will will write one of my other titles in there mm-hmm. um with, with the stage name, it reminds me of a story through immigration and, and i've performed on cruise ships um, over the years and it's very important when you're traveling obviously using your legal name Uh, and I was traveling to Singapore to meet a gigantic cruise ship once you you get to Singapore and you go through Singapore immigration you then go to the cruise terminal and then you go through another set of immigration effectively you're emigrating back out of Singapore and this particular ship for some unbeknownst reason, had listed me under my stage name. So when I gave my passport to check in and come through, they didn't know who I was. And they left me there for eight hours in the transit terminal in between our customs and immigration. So there was no food, there was no refreshments, there was, there was nothing you could do apart from sit and wait. Yeah. And it was absurd. It was absolute comedy of errors because they'd booked me under my stage name. Right and no one knew who Adam Marder was it didn't make any sense and no one asked uh, and eight hours later when it was really getting kind of an issue they finally came out and said are you Adam Marder not Adam Brindley which is my real name uh, and then it all unraveled right
0: mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the two faces of, yeah. uh, of oh, you it, it's,
1: it's actually when the magician thing being, being a magician was quite funny is when my children started going to school right. and I I can tell you there are no other magicians as parents at the school. And when I, my son was in kindergarten and I dropped him off at school and he'd said to one of his friends, oh yeah, my dad's a magician. And one of his friends said to his dad, um, oh, Finn's dad's a magician. And the other dad uh, was like, yeah, sure, sure, mate, no worries. You know, unicorns are real. And I could hear his response to the other kid, right. and thinking, "Oh, okay. okay." Got to prove um, this. It, it was it was quite funny. And then it was only a number of years later that I made friends with one of the other dads in the class, and he's a, a really well known musician and songwriter. And his son had a funny thing where his son thought that I was a musician, and Finn, my, my son Finn, thought that his dad was a magician. And so, because musician and. Ma- Magicians, yeah, that sound the same. Very get yeah. confused many, many times. Yes. So both of our kids thought that we were either musicians or magicians. Yeah. Anyway, it was a really a really good moment of friendship in that class.
0: It's like barrister and barista.
1: Hmm. Very, <laughs> <different>. <laughs>
0: yeah. So Adam, as a boy, levitating that card. Um, what was it that, that that drew you to magic? What was it that fascinated you and led you on this? Uh,
1: Look, it's a, few diff- it's a few different things. I think initially I was obsessed with how things worked. So I was that kid when there was something on the side of the street somebody had thrown out, like a printer or, or something. I'd pull it apart and try and figure out how it worked. Wow. I was always obsessed with what, what was behind the, these things. How did these, how did these devices work? Uh, so magic inherently there 's always an intellectual aspect with whenever you see a trick or a piece of magic or an illusion, you you can 't not want to know how it 's done. Mm. You kind of automatically start processing, which is why it 's exhausting to watch magic because your brain 's constantly processing whether you like it or not. How did that happen so that was that was the initial thing. Then, when I figured out the how um, it was it was this amazing way to connect with people. And I suppose when I was in my early teens, I was able to perform a trick or perform magic in, in social functions. And instantly it created this ability to connect with people on, this, on, a, on a, an amazing level. And then later on as that developed, it was about connecting other people over, over an effect. And then in my professional career now, if, if I'm performing, performing for groups, it, it's sort of seeing them connect together by having this shared live magic experience ultimately, so yeah it's it 's kind of all of that were you a confident
0: kid? I mean because to uh, get up in front of an audience and um
1: yeah, no, look, I think' to be honest, I think I was pretty shy right. as, as a young kid, and then that that changed in ebbs and flows, and then probably when I was at university, I then became a, a show off, so it was a combination of being one bit show off and another bit very shy, yeah. sort of these these two. Opposing opposing things, sort of seeking seeking to battle.
0: So, where were the magicians that you could access, that you could see? Was Nowhere. It television variety, or or who, who were the first magicians that started to appear before you, or that you became aware of?
1: Uh not really until I was in my very late tw- teens or early twenties. Yeah. Really, um, I'm originally from Canberra, right? A very unmagical place, no exposure to show business really whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, I, I probably, as a kid, saw a little bit of magic on some of the variety shows. I mean, I was only ever allowed to watch ABC, so I had no understanding of any other channel at that time. Um, but probably some of the touring circuses and, and larger shows that did, did come through. Um, but really, finding and being exposed to magicians and magic for me didn't really happen until really I lived in Brighton in England in in my early 20s once I left university and and in England there is so much magic everywhere Uh, you you know in a place like Brighton there's lots of magicians everywhere Uh, there's lots of magic shows and there's a a huge history uh, with with magic in in England unlike what we're exposed to here so I think... A lot of my magic, I suppose not being exposed to other magicians when I early on was has probably shaped my performing style and the fact that I create a lot of my own stuff because I sort of had to i guess so a lot of my magic in my early twenties was quite weird and odd because I had to find my i guess I had to find my own way by making mistakes yeah. uh, but rather than watching another magician and copying them, I never really Got to do that. So,
0: I think my uh, the first musician I became aware of was Ross Skiffington. You know, Ross, yes, who, who appeared yeah, on Ross. things like the Don Lane Show and Young Talent Time. And, Ross is a great friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, a big presence yep. on, on Australian television.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Ross Ross is uh, an amazing person and very generous. He's a very very generous person, and many young people like myself, he really embraces uh, he embraces them, and he has all the time in the world. The world for you, Um, and he's he's given me a lot of help over the years. Where
0: did you say those those schools were for magicians? Indonesia was it? South 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 Africa. Africa. South Africa in
1: Cape Town, the the College of Magic. Uh, That's probably the largest known formal institution for magic. The rest of them are ad hoc courses run by people, really.
0: And and Vegas seems to be the mecca for magicians. You know, with Siegfried and Roy and Penn and Teller and. David Copperfield. And
1: yeah, look, it, I guess that's where the money is. That's that's where the money is for big shows. That's where the investment's going, um, and you've just got a huge population, uh, and it, that's where tickets are moving for big shows like that.
0: Mm. You, um, it, when you started to um, think that you might make this your profession, you went to a, a master class in Vegas. Yeah, the Jeff McBride.
1: Magic yeah. Masterclass, tell mm. me
0: about that and how you, how you discovered that. What?
1: Yeah, look, I, I, once again, I, it was early on in my career and I was looking for ways to, 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 to make this profession. And so I did everything I could to study um, and, and find ways to absorb knowledge and, and find a way to, to make this profession. So back then, uh, Jeff McBride is a very well-known magician in Las Vegas for, for a very, very long time. Um, He's sort of a creative powerhouse and he runs a whole sort of series of educational workshops and and he's got a a school that he set up. Um, And so he mentors many, many hundreds of magicians around the world. Um, So back then it was a a huge amount of money for me to save up for this course. I I saved up and I spent two months over there uh, in Las Vegas and I also travelled to Venezuela and a few places around there um And for me it at, at that same time it's when i I was a software developer in my previous life, and I was sort of transitioning out of that and into magic full time and so this that moment of going and seeing Jeff was kind of a a real transitional point in my career of becoming full time and so it, it was wonderful it 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 meant that it, it was almost an instant backstage pass to Las Vegas. So as soon as you go and hang out with Jeff and all the guys, we're going to all of these shows. We're meeting Lance Burton and all of these amazing Las Vegas performers were getting invited to shows and going backstage. And we even filmed a documentary with Jeff on the street. We had camera crews following around. And, and back then in my, in my early 20s, it was all, you know, razzle-dazzle. Um, you know, stars and lights and all, all of those sorts of things. And look, the, doing the course with Jeff was... In one part, amazing and another part totally humiliating, because the way that they run the course is you 've got to create something and, and bring it to them and show them, and they don 't pat you on the back and say that 's great that 's lovely that 's really good they actually tear you down <laughs> um, and they and they pull you apart and they criticize you and they and, and they do what they need to do um, and I do remember it was extraordinarily humiliating whatever I made and, and took over there um, it was terrible. <laughs> And, and they absolutely ripped me apart for it but that had so much value in, in my career um, and now now as an educator of magic myself I, I really realised how kind that was to, to do that early on rather yeah. than being a, a yes person One of the
0: hardest things uh, and probably the greatest things to experience is to, to learn how to fail because through failing you, you only get better, don't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely and, and failure, I've, I've given many talks on failure um, it's, it's absolutely necessary for that to happen. And the only, the only way I actually gained, gained true confidence on stage was through humiliation. And unless things go wrong for you on stage, you really have no gauge or sense on, on what's actually gone well. And we were talking earlier about Slide and, and El Cerco. And The way that I got that contract with El Serco, it was my first sort of big ongoing residency contract, was was a huge moment of failure. And this this was for the Kings Cross Food and Wine Festival. And I was one one of the acts that, that came on. Uh, I was doing a 25 minute show and after my act, Clover Moore was coming on to do a presentation. And I'd gotten through the, the show, it was all kind of okay. I had a few colorful characters on stage. As you can imagine, in that place, um, and I was building up to my finale, which was a levitation um, of of this uh, girl Kellyanne Doll, who's a very famous uh, burlesque dancer these days and swing dancer. And so I sort of did a bit of a collab with her, and we're getting ready for the levitation. She comes out onto stage, and this is in broad daylight. It's a lunch it's a lunchtime festival, and the sun. Um, Sort of blinds her, and as she goes to connect into the levitation apparatus, something gets missed. And she goes up the levitation, it's about six feet in the air. And she was floating for one, two, and then boom, she fell oh. straight onto the floor right. at my feet. And it was absolutely humiliating. I could not believe what had happened. So I quickly scooped her up, made sure she was okay, and we both ran off stage. And I never came back out. <laughs> I, at the time I had because it was a finale to the show, I had I hadn't I had nothing. I had no backups, no no recovery. And of course, you know, in, in the car on the way home, I had a million ways of how I could have recovered and the gags and all of that and, and how I could have resolved and made it a really funny thing. But it was Mark Kuzma who saved the show and Mark was emceeing that day as Claire Delune and Mark went out on stage and covered covered for me um, and sort of sort of saved my bacon um, and then I got a call from Mark a, a week after and said oh did you want to come in and, and I want to discuss this whole Circo concept and he ended up giving me that job wow. um, and we've been great friends ever since and have yeah. worked together for 16 years or something uh, but that all came through oh, I thought it was the end of my career I thought it was mortifying it was 2,000 people sitting there, there was lots of people I thought were really important. Um, And I thought it was the end of being a magician. But it was only the start. Just the
0: start. New chapter. Yeah. New chapter. Um, Studying with McBride and um, Venezuela, doing those courses there, etc. What what does the syllabus consist of? What what, what do they teach you? Is there a a history of magic? um, The various tricks you can do? um, Showmanship?
1: Look, I'd like to think... That there was more of a formal structure to the way that those things work, but there's the reality is there's there isn't. Yeah, Learn um, by doing. It's it's whatever they've made up at the time. Um, we really the, the the point of those courses were were very tailored to what our skill set was or what we were interested in, and so the idea was that we created something and we brought it to them, and then we broke that down and, and explained why. X didn't work. Why? Uh, why that worked, and we sort of broke down the structure of a routine. And I suppose that's the foundation: is breaking down the structure of a magic routine and discovering why it did and didn't work. And then we explored other themes with, with um, you know, close-up magic and stage magic and and mentalism and mind reading. And you know, there there were it was a funny exercise we did actually. Um, Jeff's a colourful character. I mean he would come down and greet us in the workshop wearing a utility belt and then floral f- floral robes he was a, you know he's a very unusual character and even more unusual now that i think think back to those times yeah. um and so we did this funny exercise where he gave us a brass bowl and uh something we call flash paper and an incense stick and We had to, and flash paper is an explosive paper that when ignited, it it flashes in a a bright flash. Uh, Something I use extensively these days for all all various sorts of projects. And we had to sit there for an hour um, using sleight of hand and the flash paper and making the flash paper explode and turn into a little flower. And it was just repeated over and over and over and over until we lost any meaning of what we were doing so we did lots of exercises like that which i really got a lot out of
0: i mm. um, in my research um, um, i'll lead into a quote that i discovered um, you said all magic is created by hard work and science it's the intersection of art and science to create an effect magic and illusion are byproducts of the way the eyes perceive an event yeah did I say that, did I? Yeah, you did. It's very impressive, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, but, but I was fascinated that you said, you know, it's, it's magic is created by hard work yeah. and science, and mm. it's also about the, the way that their eyes perceive something. Mm. Um, can you tell me more about
1: that? Well, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's another really great quote by a guy called Arthur C. Clarke, who's a science fiction writer. Mm. Uh, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So, the... the, the how are, those, how are those quotes connected? Well, ultimately, magic um, is not magic. So magic is is just the way that we interpret something that's happened. Um, and it's a very broad term, magic. I mean, magic can mean something different to you, to me, to, to um, Jeff down the road. It, you can look at a painting, it can be magic. Ultimately, magic is, is a feeling. What I tell my students at NIDA is that an illusion is what we see magic is what we feel and so it it um you're creating uh, you know a surprising event um that happens and then the only way you can really explain that is well it must be magic and that's ultimately what magic then is but to, cre- to create any kind of effect why i say science is that science is the technology behind the magic whether it's sleight of hand or whether it's a gimmick or whether it's an electromagnetism type of thing um, or whether it's some sort of technology that you're not aware of uh, which magicians use all the time and then it's creating something with a surprising result kind of magic works very much like comedy where you've got this kicker ending except it's structurally the same with an entirely different effect so when you're watching a comedian or you get a gag when when the when, when you get the punchline, you understand. With magic, the punchline is, is the appearance of the flowers. You don't understand, you don't understand where they've come from. So it's almost the opposite effect, but with the same structure. With, with technology, um, really when when we're exposed to new technology and we have no idea how that technology works, it really does seem like magic. And there's obviously a lot of hard work that's gone into creating that technology. Um, it's a great story um, by a French magician Jean-Robert Houdin who used electromagnetism to fool his audience uh, with a box that people could not lift and it's a very long and involved story and there's many various accounts of this story but effectively he was exploiting the audience's um, understanding of technology at the time and when he was using electromagnetism this is the 1700s no one knew what electromagnetism was. Yeah. Um, it, it effectively was magic. What is this force that can hold this box down that I can't lift it? It's, it's, it's befuddling. Um, so, yeah, exploiting technology in ways that you think may not be used is always a, a fantastic way to sort of create magic as well.
0: well. I remember the first time I encountered Bluetooth. I just couldn't believe it. I thought yeah. that was magic. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean... It, It pretty much is. I mean, your phone is like a magic stick. You can speak to somebody on the other side of the world instantly and then you can send them a video instantly. Um, It is literally a magic stick. And a few of the... I remember the iPad ads from a number of years ago when they came out, it was all about magic, the magic of the iPad, you know, flicking through photos and just the way that you interact with it. It was effectively a a magic tablet. Um, Yeah, so... mm
0: great deal of of precision goes into the execution of a trick as well yeah rehearsal um, if it's a big trick you know with the the stuff that you were um, managing and and guiding on um, Australia's Got Talent Mm. I assume there's a whole team of of stage management involved as well to pull it off
1: yeah look it's it, it kind of whenever I come onto a production it and most productions ultimately haven't worked with the magic consultant or advisor before on their creative team so there's always a little bit of a process of, of not education but understanding how it works um, and with any, any given effect in any production whether it's a, a live magician show or a theatre production or a play or a musical magic kind of touches all the departments so from stage management to direction to movement to uh, choreography to the props department to costume to wardrobe and everybody needs to kind of pull off their little part of the job to make that trick work on stage um, and if one of those things go wrong, let's say a lighting element goes wrong it may expose the illusion and the illusion won't work um, or a costume element doesn't quite fit or work properly um, so it it does mean that when using magic it's, it's quite challenging to, to pull off and ultimately that translates to expensive because it it requires time from all of these creatives uh to really invest in focusing to pull off that that trick
0: mm. well a very impressive team of creatives uh, <laughs> which you've you've worked with is um uh the team at the princess theater in melbourne harry potter and the cursed yeah. child i mean i have never experienced such awe-inspiring mm. magic and illusion i mean it's just one after the other throughout that three and a half hours.
1: Yeah, well, that, that, that's precision on another level. That's, that's a production where they they actually do have the budget to be able to pull off that level of precision. And that level of precision is only arrived at after extensive technical rehearsals and a rehearsal period prior to that and extensive research and development prior to that. Um, and that then allows for that ultra-precision and especially with the lighting, the lighting, the lighting on um, the Cursed Child is a remarkable feast, and it, it's designed in a way that we have so much control over the lighting where we can light only a portion of somebody's face and have all sorts of things happen outside that space. Um, and that level of control really allows for some, some really interesting effects to be able to be pulled off, whereas you often will never have that level of control in any any environment, um, yeah.
0: So that production originated in the UK. Mm. Does, when it come, arrives in Australia, does it come with a like a set of blueprints or, or recipes um, for the tricks and how they need to be ex- executed? And then you you guide and support and
1: yeah. So uh, on that? on cursed child, I was an associate. Right. So with with that role, I worked with an international team, um, and and most of the magic and effects had had been arrived at already so we Melbourne was the third version of that show so it had been running in uh, West End went to Broadway and then Melbourne was the third third installment it was a really exciting time to be a part of that production when it was parts one and, and two because the third version meant that all of the creatives could get back into the sandbox and play with it again and really arrive at whatever they never really got to finish on the original production and i mean what what production ever gets up in its first first sort of year of a season and is the finished product none that i've ever worked on so the beauty of harry potter is that because it's such a long-running show it can continually adapt and evolve and the the props that we got to work with would have been the third or fourth iterations of of r&d um and it, it meant that I did have a little bit of wiggle room to create some new things and, and sort of evolve a few tricks and illusions. And in fact, when we got to week six of tech, um, they actually said, all right, that's no more tinkering, Adam. We're, the show's locked and we, we can't change anything anymore. That's, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. And I, I sort of love to tinker and constantly improve yeah. things. And, and so does the rest of the team. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sort of... We had a bit of, a, a bit of an outline... Uh, a bit of an outline of how things need to be. Some things which were very, very established had had specific pr- procedures that were scripted out. But then, realising that with a new creative team and a new cast, we had to make make that happen. And then some things were still being evolved. There were still some tricks that needed needed to be reimagined. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, a little bit of both.
0: I watched the recent uh, series of Australia's Got Talent. Mm. And it's really refreshing to see that there's a whole host of budding young magicians. Yeah. I almost said musicians <laughs> a host of budding young magicians uh coming up through the ranks. So yeah. you know, the next generation. That's very yeah. exciting and it must excite
1: you. Yeah, look it it um when they brought me on board I, I specifically wanted to cast some young some young women. And one thing that I ran into was that and this was a result of COVID, is that there were lots of young people that, around the ages of 12, 13, that were really into magic. They were really, really pushing it. They were, they were, they were into it. They were out there sort of starting their careers doing gigs and, and busking or all of that sort of thing. But when you're that young and suddenly you go into a pandemic and there's lockdowns, there are zero opportunities. There's 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 no uh, there's nowhere to perform at all, not even for family. And a lot of these young people that I was reaching out to to try and cast had actually not done anything for a number of years. And suddenly now they're 15, 16, and they're significantly older, but they'd kind of left left the magic behind. So that was a real continual... That was a problem that I came up against, and it was very, very hard to find find these people. The other thing is when you're talking about some older people, sort of teenagers, 16, 17, 18, around that age, where they were much more established, they were doing some professional shows, some gigs. What had happened to them is, as as we went through COVID, they really realised that maybe I should be looking at doing something else. And so a lot of them either went to university or went and got jobs in other industries and then never came back. And so we lost a huge amount of talent through that time especially young people and I'd say it's probably a smart move for, for them I mean yeah. how could you see any kind of career in an industry that could be just wiped off the wiped off the plate mm. overnight literally um, so it meant that it was extraordinarily difficult to cast young up and coming up and coming ta- uh, talent we had to really really look look deep and then the talent that we did cast we had to work with them very, very heavily to you know, help, help direct and create their routines.
0: Um, an act, a performance, can take place on a, you know a, a large stage where you're playing to an audience of two thousand, mm. or it can be an intimate card trick yeah. where you're just around a table doing it for five yeah. four or five people. Um, is it easier or harder performing for? a smaller crowd or, oh, or, or a big crowd Peter good or what, what good, do you prefer good, good question you're more exposed in a way I guess with um, well either way I guess you know, so, so.
1: look you can also do both right. and and that's really only been kind of achievable in the last 15 years is to perform an intimate close up piece of magic on a stage in front of 2,000 people supported by giant screens and a live camera. So pretty much every magic show now will incorporate some sort of live video element up on the big screen. So it's sort of the best of both worlds. And in fact, a lot of the Got Talent Magic franchise performances around the world now will be... have kind of departed from grand stage illusion and traditional stage magic, and they've really gone into a more immersive, close-up, interacting with the judges kind of magic, because that... Reads actually better on television, and a, and a tiny trick done with a, a deck of playing cards, or a finger ring, or, or, or something in the hands, can play just as big as any stage illusion, yeah. and it seems more real and yeah. more skillful. So that's interesting. But I digress. Going back to your original question, performing for a larger group, two thousand people, is much easier than performing for a group of ten. Right. Absolutely, hands down. Why so? Well, when you're performing to a large theatre or a large group, there's a little bit of a mob mentality. And if you get the room laughing, it, the whole room will just start laughing. Yeah. It's much easier, surprisingly, it's much easier to misdirect and control a large group of people than it is a small group. When you've got a group of 10 people, effectively you've got 10 separate eyes watching you and you've got, you must absolutely connect with all ten of those people, yeah. and you need to be looking and performing and connecting with all of them one on one, so effectively you're doing t- you're performing for ten separate people individually because they won't necessarily perform, uh, behave as a cohesive group. When you're on stage in front of two thousand people, you're just performing to one pe- one person. It's almost like a camera lens into the audience, and they they will all effectively react and, and beh- behave as a, as a mob yeah right. And so once the mob starts applauding, everyone will start applauding. Um, yeah.
0: And um, what about younger audiences and older audiences? What's 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 uh, more fun to play with? Because you're about to embark on a new show, uh, Possum Magic, mm. with Monkey Bar. Where you'll be creating and designing magic for, um, you know, infants really, young, young
1: people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, look the, the age group for possum magic is generally... It, it's it's kindergarten, year one, and year two. Um, sort of the age of my daughter. Um, yeah, so look, it, one thing with kids is... Ultimately, magic doesn't work for kids. They don't understand the rules of the world yet, so to break those rules with magic, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect, whereas with adults, they have a preconceived notion of how things should be so as soon as you flip that on its head and and change an expectation instantly they're fooled adults in general are much easier to fool with the trick Um, the more intelligent the adult is the the easier they are to fool (laughs) really (laughs) yeah Yeah. so for example the worst audience you can possibly have is a bunch of drunks people who have been drinking too much um, are not thinking properly And they're also not paying attention so you can't misdirect them or control them and they're not looking where you want them to look they're impossible to deal with Uh, children are a little bit like that so a group of children are extraordinarily honest and they will instantly let you know how they feel about something Um, so whether they like it or they don't like it they'll let you know whether the trick fools them or doesn't fool them they'll just simply tell you how it works um, th- there's no filter there. Yeah, yeah. And they also don't have a, 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 pre- a preconceived notion of how things really need to be. They're not programmed, essentially. Yeah. So they're, they're very free-thinking free thinking people. Um, but with Possum Magic, it on the first initial season in 2018, I think it was, uh, every single show, we, well, I think 90% of the shows, they did a Q&A after the show and on our show reports we got all of those Q&As and it was really interesting and I will be using that for the remount of Possum Magic because we've got all, this, all of this data on what they liked, what questions they were asking, what what they thought was magic, what they didn't think was magic and we've got all this fascinating um, Q&A on, on what the kids thought which is really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think designing magic for a younger, younger audience it needs to be really good, basically. And and kids... I think children these days... There's not very much... There's a lack of high-quality theatre for children. And Monkey Bar absolutely deliver really high-quality, thoughtful theatre for, for children. Mm. And rather than dumbing down things and making it colourful and, and, and just kind of commercialising, they're actually telling real stories and they're really connecting with young audiences and I think if it works on kids it's absolutely going to work for an adult audience absolutely hands down mm.
0: uh, Magic also is of course a universal language can yeah. sp- speak to anybody Yeah, yeah, no matter what your language it
1: is yeah it, it, that's part of my sales pitch for corporate oh, shows no, really <laughs> <laughs> excellent well I mean I, I do a lot of company events and in any, any company you've got a very broad demographic uh, from, from uh, people working at a warehouse level to the executive team, you've got a broad, broad uh, cultural class, uh, you've got people from all over the place, especially in this country. And so magic does actually appeal to just a, a broad range of, uh, range of people. Um, everybody can really kind of enjoy it. Um, although I, I would estimate there's probably one in 10 people that actually hate magic or they've had a a poor experience with magic in the past, Um, whatever that might be, but they they will just reject it.
0: Right. Mm. Like clowns. Some (laughs) people just can't cope with clowns.
1: Yeah, look, (laughs) I find people, often people that have a strong sort of control freak nature about them, they feel that magic, if they're watching something they don't understand, that can make them feel uncomfortable. They've lost control. Yeah, so it... That crops up every now and then. And then it, it is my job as a performer and entertainer to, to make people that fall into that category feel comfortable. Um, and I, I do deal with that in the show. And it's, it's sort of taking it away from I'm smarter than you, I can fool you, and making it more of a joyous, fun experience that we're all kind of in together. And that, that kind of pops that balloon a little bit and gets them on board. But, um,
0: yeah. Well, thank you, Adamada. This has been a, um, a fascinating... Conversation. It's great to see that practitioners like you are keeping the um, the craft of, of magic and illusion alive in Australia for um, for the next generation and uh, for the ones uh, that, have, that have passed.
1: Thank you, Peter.
0: It's uh, it's been great to chat. Thank you.
1: I'll see you at the next show. Absolutely.
0: Now make me disappear. Boom. A Monkey Bar Theatre Company production. Based on the books by Mim Fox and Julie Vivas, Possum Magic is adapted for the stage by Evita Cesare and Sandy Eldridge. Playing the ARA Darling Quarter Theatre from March 31st and the 3rd to the 5th of April in 2023, the show is bound to delight, engage and capture the imaginations of the young people and their big friends and family, having their imaginations fueled by this magical production. And my guest today, Adam Mata, will be the magic and illusion designer for Possum Magic. What a thrill to be able to access his vast knowledge of magic in this terrific episode of The Stages Podcast. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.